1520, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, wrote a famous treatise entitled On the Freedom of a Christian. In the opening paragraph, he made this statement. He said, A Christian man is the most free lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. A Christian man is the most free lord of all, subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to we're going to see why this is the case as we look at this, this very short but fascinating passage from Matthew's Gospel. But before I do, let me remind you where we're up to in Matthew. Uh, in Matthew chapter 16, you may remember, God had revealed to Peter that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, God's promised King. And uh, Jesus had begun to teach his disciples what that kingship meant. Jesus must suffer and die and be raised to life as King. He was going to die, and anyone who wanted to follow him must be prepared to die as well. And then we saw the beginning of chapter 17. Uh, Jesus was transfigured before, before Peter, James and John, giving them a glimpse of the glory that, that was to come. And after that we saw his healing of a, of a boy who was plagued by an evil spirit, an exorcism that couldn't be done by his disciples who weren't really trusting in him. And so he reminded them in verse 22 and 23 as they went and came up north to Galilee again that he would be betrayed and killed and after three days he would rise. For the death and resurrection of Jesus would be the way that God was going to bring healing to all creation uh, and defeat of all evil powers. Now they were still up there in the north of the country when this incident that we read about this morning happened. There were two scenes in the story. Uh, in the first scene, uh, Peter is out and about somewhere in Capernaum. And he's appointed by, uh, approached rather, by some people who are collecting a tax. Let's have a look at it again. Uh, chapter 17, verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now, this temple tax uh, was a tax that was meant for the upkeep of the temple and to keep the sacrifices going. Uh, it was a flat tax of two drachma, uh, which was about two days' wage. It actually started back in Old Testament times, when God had said, whenever you have a census, each adult male is to pay half a shekel for the same purpose. Uh, we saw that in our Old Testament reading from Exodus 30. Whenever there was a census, which was usually in military times, when you were counted, as they counted you, it was half a shekel. And this payment was made to God to atone for your life, so that no plague would come upon you as a result of the census. It was called a ransom. And the money would be to look after the tabernacle and pay for some of those sacrifices. And this practice later developed into an annual tax. And 2 Chronicles 24 tells on how uh, King Joash uh, forced it to be collected after the temple fell into, um, into disrepair after a period of apostasy and he had to, had to uh, restore the temple. It's mentioned again after the exile in Nehemiah 10. Although by then it's gone down to a third of a shekel probably because that's all the people could afford at the time. 
by the time of Jesus, all Jewish males over the age of 20 were required to pay it every year. So the people who are collecting this tax approach Peter and they ask whether Jesus pays. Now, we don't know why they've approached Peter instead of Jesus with this question. Uh, maybe that uh, they were all living at Peter's house. We know that Peter's house is at Capernaum. And so he was like the host of the home, you see. So it could have been that. Or it could have been simply they didn't dare to approach Jesus. And they thought, well, they took a roundabout route and, you know, go and catch out one of his disciples instead. Could be both. In any case, Peter was very quick to defend his master. Without actually checking first to see if he did. Does Jesus pay the temple tax? Well, verse 25, Yes, he does, he replied. Jesus pays his temple tax. He always does the right thing. I don't know why you're bothering us with that. End of scene one. Scene two, we're back at the house, in private. And Peter means to ask Jesus about that tax, to, to check and see if he said the right thing. But before he has a chance to do it, Jesus speaks first. We don't know if Jesus had overheard the conversation or another disciple had told him about it or he knew about it by supernatural means, but whatever it is, he knows. Verse 25. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From who do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? The kings especially in those days, would tax their citizens for the upkeep of the monarchy. The whole nation belonged to him, in a sense. People paid tribute to him. But he wouldn't tax his own family. He wouldn't tax his own son. Uh, the king and his son, uh, they were the ones who were collecting the tax, not, not paying it. And so, Peter gives the obvious reply in verse 26. From others, Peter's uns Peter answered, then the sons are exempt. Jesus said. Now, that's the logical conclusion, isn't it? And remember, Peter has already just recognized that Jesus is the Son of God. And the tax is for God's temple. Jesus is God's Son. Now, does God's Son have to pay tax to God? The answer, of course, is no. The sons are exempt. You can't expect God to pay tax for his own temple, can you? And you can't expect his son, who is equal with him in every way, to, to do so either. And so since Jesus is God's son, he is exempt from the temple tax. Now, back to the question they asked Peter. Does Jesus pay the temple tax? Peter, in all his eagerness to defend him from the possible charge of wrongdoing, said, of course. But Jesus has pronounced his own freedom from it doesn't need to pay the tax. When we realize that, then it's surprising, isn't it? Then Jesus does something even more surprising. He pays it. Even though he doesn't need to pay it, he does. Verse 27 tells us why. But so that we may not offend them, go and do all this thing to pay the tax. So that we may not offend them. Jesus was willing to do something he didn't need to do so as not to offend the collectors of the two drachma tax. Isn't that interesting? It's amazing, isn't it? He, he was free. 
He didn't need to pay tax to God because he was a son. He didn't need the sacrifices of the temple because he was sinless. He didn't need the atonement, the cleansing from sin, what the tax originally was there for. There was no reason he needed to pay the tax, but he was going to do so anyway. So as not to offend. Friends, that's a principle that we need to learn, isn't it? It's an example that we need to follow. Because sometimes we do things that we don't need to do in order not to offend others. Sometimes we can do things that we don't need to do in order not to offend others. The Apostle Paul learned this lesson as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23, he says this, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all means possible I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Brothers and sisters, there are sometimes things that we do that we don't need to. Sometimes things that we can do that we choose not to, for the reason of not offending. Paul, he was flexible because he wanted to bring people the gospel. He knew that in Christ he was free. He was willing, therefore, to be like a Jew, or like a Gentile, like whoever, so that he could reach them with the gospel. He understood that since the death and resurrection of Jesus, he was no longer under the Old Testament law anymore. He was, he was free to keep it or free not to. He would keep it when it would further the gospel, and he would choose not to keep it when it wouldn't. He would use his freedom to serve the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And as much as he could, he would avoid offending others. Now, there were, of course, some issues on which he would not compromise. When the gospel was at stake, Paul was a formidable and devastating opponent. But when it came to his own freedoms, he just really didn't mind. He was prepared to bend for the sake of the gospel. And friends, he learned that from Jesus. He, he goes on in chapter 10. He says, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. And, and here we see the example of Christ. He does this when he doesn't need to, so as not to offend others. And when do we do that? When do we do things so as to not make an offence? And on the other hand, when do we take a stand? I'll look at the example of Jesus again. Remember, when it came to keeping God's word, when it came to believing the gospel, Jesus, Jesus was a very tough opponent. He criticized the Pharisees and teachers of the law very harshly when they 
added their tradition to God's word in a way that nullified it. He denounced them to their face when they hypocritically asked him for a sign to trap him. He warned his disciples against their teaching when they refused to believe that he was the Christ. When it came to the collection of taxes, he paid even though he didn't have to. So as not to offend. See, he wasn't a coward. He was willing to die. He told his disciples to be ready for it. But he knew which battles to fight. He knew which hill he wanted to die on. And it wasn't going to be a battle about taxation. See, friends, there are some battles that are not worth fighting. There are some things that we do that we don't need to. And some things that we avoid that we can do so as not to offend. And at other times we draw on the line and say, no. Sometimes it's not easy to work out, isn't it? Which one, which one's which? What, what, think about this case. Is paying the temple tax something that violates God's law? No, it isn't. Jesus lived under the law, and there was nothing in the law to suggest he would be doing something wrong by paying it. So even if he doesn't need to, he can. Nothing intrinsically wrong by paying a tax. For Jesus, that was an area of freedom. And since freedom is given to us so that we can use it for good, Jesus used his freedom for the good and paid the tax. And Paul would do the same kind of thing. He says he is free from the law of Moses, so, the example, he can eat anything he likes. When he's with the Jews, he has the freedom to eat chasupal, right? but the freedom not to eat chasupal, and he will exercise his freedom not to eat chasupal. It's a pork, pork, uh, pork, pork, uh, pork buns, right? right? Uh, if, if he's with the Jews. When he's with the Jews, so as not to offend his Jewish friends, he will eat roast beef instead. Although if he was trying to evangelize Hindus, I think he'll be back to Chasupa. And he uses his freedom to serve others with the gospel. Now, how do we apply that in our lives? Well, there are many ways, isn't there? Where there are many things that really don't matter one way or the other, ourselves. And so we work hard not to offend for the sake of the gospel, even if it restricts our freedoms in some way. Gospel is offensive enough. And we mustn't compromise that ever. And if people are offended by the gospel, then that's, that's too bad, isn't it? That's God's gospel. Nothing. He can't change it. But we don't need to add offense unnecessarily. There are all kinds of examples. I'm sure you can think of examples in your own life where you have choices and you have freedoms and you unnecessary well, you, you, you restrict your freedoms for the sake of others. Let me give you three examples. Um, whenever I preach or lead the Lord's Supper at the traditional service at the cathedral, there we go, I wear this long black robe called a cassock. And on top of that, a white gown called a surplice and a piece of coloured cloth on top of that called a stole. That's, that's pretty elaborate, isn't it? Now, we all know that at one level, what you or I wear at church is of no importance, is it? I mean, if I'm preaching, that's what I say that's important. Am I being faithful to the word of God? Right? My fashion sense is, is quite irrelevant. What we wear at the Lord's Supper is entirely irrelevant to the supper, isn't it? Whether I put on a clergy gown or a nightgown is, is complete indifference. It doesn't matter in the slightest as long as it's decent. Because what's important is that we're living in love to each other. 
and remembering the death of the Lord Jesus in our place. So, why would I wear a fancy dress? The answer is the same reason that Jesus paid the temple tax, so as not to offend. If I went to the traditional service and dressed like I am now and preached and led the Lord's Supper, do you know what happened? Lots of people would be upset. They wouldn't hear me preaching the gospel. They'd be wondering why I was being unnecessarily offensive. They wouldn't be thinking about the death of Jesus. They'd be thinking about the death of Andrew. And it just wouldn't be helpful. If I can preach the gospel in a traditional Anglican church by wearing a traditional Anglican dress, then I'll preach the gospel in a traditional Anglican church by wearing a traditional Anglican dress. If I ask to preach the gospel in a traditional Baptist church, then I'll wear a traditional Baptist coat and tie instead. Whether we wear robes or ties or t-shirts, it's not really a battle worth fighting, is it? It's not a hill worth dying on. I mustn't simply insist on my own preference. What's far more important is that people hear the gospel. Dear brothers and sisters, we've been given enormous freedom in Christ. We need to use it to do good, not to offend those we're trying to reach. Another example is the use of alcohol. That's an area of freedom for most Christians. But if you're someone who's tempted to drink too much, then it's not an area of freedom, because we're all meant to flee from temptation. But for most of us, it's an area of freedom. It's a gift from God, and nothing wrong with it in itself. So from time to time, I'll exercise my freedom to drink a glass of wine and thank God for it. However, if I was seeking to bring the gospel to people who would be offended by my drinking, then I wouldn't drink. It's not worth it. Now, there are some churches which frown on alcohol, and if I was part of one of those churches, then I would abstain from alcohol. Not because it's bad, but because there's far more important things to do in church than to fight about whether or not you can drink alcohol. The other time I would abstain from alcohol was if I thought it would cause someone who was tempted to alcohol abuse to drink as well. Because then I'd be leading my brother into sin, and that would be wrong. Friends, we've got enormous freedom in Christ. We must choose to use our freedom for good, not for evil. One last example. Mark's girlfriend, Helen, came out to visit him last month. Do you think they look similar? (laughs) Now, around that time, Mark needed to go to Phuket. Now, they could have gone together, could they? There'd be nothing technically wrong with sitting beside each other on the aeroplane, take adjoining rooms to the hotel, spend quality time together walking and talking in a new place, but, but they didn't. Mark didn't take Helen, not because he and Helen would have done something wrong while they were there, but the very fact that they'd go on holiday together would cause others to stumble. See, some people would be offended. They would think that they would have inevitably done sinful things on their holiday together. And when Mark tried to speak to them about Jesus, they wouldn't be able to listen. Some people would be stumbled in another way. They'd look at Mark's example and say, hey, it's okay to go on holidays with your girlfriend. And they'll do it. And while they're on holidays, they would fall into temptation and sin. So Mark did what the right thing to do was in that situation. He used his freedom not to go on an exclusive holiday with his girlfriend. He went to Phuket all by himself in the week before she came. And then, he, then she stayed with Judy and me in our house. And 
Mark took her out every day to see the sights of chaos. That's how Christians use their freedom. Our Lord Jesus used his freedom from the temple tax to pay the temple tax. But, but notice how he does it. It's absolutely brilliant. Verse 27. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it, and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, can you imagine the look on Peter's face <laughs> when Jesus says this? Can you imagine the amazement when he actually goes and does what Jesus says and finds the coin in the fish's mouth? I mean, why would Jesus get him to do it this way? What's, what's going on here? I mean, surely there would have been a couple of drachmas in a common purse that, that, that Jesus could have used. Why? Why this miracle? Well, if you think about it, it's a miracle that actually shows why Jesus doesn't need to pay the tax. It shows to Peter himself ever so clearly that Jesus doesn't need to pay the tax even though he does. Because it shows the divinity of Christ, doesn't it? And who else but God could, ex- could tell someone to do just what Jesus tells Peter to do and expect it to happen? Who but the, the Lord of creation, animate or inanimate, including fish and coins? I mean, what are the chances of someone dropping a coin in the water at just a particular time the fish was swimming by there, and the fish to eat it and have it in its mouth, and then for the exact fish to be the first fish that Peter picks up? I mean, it's incredibly improbable. The chance of it happening is just so slim, and that's the whole point. See, God is the one who controls probability. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. What's incredibly improbable is commanded by the word of Jesus, and it happens. Which shows Jesus is the sovereign one in whose hands all things lie, that he is God, that he is the Son, and that's exactly why he doesn't need to pay the tax. So Jesus pays it so as not to offend, but actually he does it in a way that shows that he doesn't need to. It's just so brilliant, you see. He's able both to affirm his lordship, and avoid the tax, uh, offending the tax collectors at exactly the same time. Now there's one other surprising thing here. Jesus pays not only his own temple tax, but he pays for Peter's as well. Now, Peter, unlike Jesus, does need to pay the table tax, te- table tax temple tax under the old covenant. At that point, he was still under the old covenant. Jesus hadn't yet died and risen again. He still needed the temples and the sacrifices. He still needed atonement. And he really did owe God the money. But Jesus provided for him as well. The one who owed God no debt, supernaturally provided for the debt of his disciples. And that's a little pattern, isn't it, that points forward to that wonderful thing that Jesus did for Peter, and in fact for us, on the cross. For Jesus was the one person in history who not only didn't need to pay the temple tax, he didn't need to die. He didn't deserve to die, for he never sinned. But in love, for our sake, he chose to die anyway. And in doing so, he provided the means of payment of what we owe to God. Not just a couple of drachma for the temple, but a lifetime of perfect obedience. 
And when he died, he died for us. He died to take our sin and our punishment. He died to give his life as a ransom for our debt. He made atonement for us. He was the sacrifice for us, made once and for all on the cross. And so we don't need to pay a temple tax to upkeep a temple system anymore. We don't need to pay atonement money anymore or ransom money anymore. We are, we are God's sons in Christ. And in Christ we belong to him. And God doesn't tax his own sons. Now, we could end it there. But there's just one more thing uh, to add to this as we talk about God and, and, and tax. It's not really the point of the passage, uh, so, but it is an issue raised by it, so I was putting it as an appendix. Christian giving is not tax. Christian giving is not tax. Sometimes churches make it sound like it is, you know, like it's a flat, flat 10% tax that you pay to God or he's going to withhold his blessing from you. Friends, that was part of the old covenant. And you simply don't find that in the new once again, we are free. No longer does God say, you must pay such and such and such amount. We are free. But we must use our freedom to serve God and others. We must remember that everything we have belongs to God, and some of it he wants us to use to support gospel work. Some of it he wants us to use to help the poor. We have responsibilities to our family. We have responsibilities to our church family. And, and we have a partnership with people who uh, we give money for so that they don't have to uh, work outside, we can concentrate on, 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 on uh, proclaiming the gospel. All those things are important. But how much should we give? As much as we need to and as much as we can. We are to give out of generous, transformed hearts. Hearts that look for ways to glorify God. Who really want to serve Him. Who really want to use whatever resources God has given us to, 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 for His glory. We want to give out of hearts that love God and love serving his people. Now, for many of us, 10% is a good figure to start with if we're trying to be disciplined about our giving. Many people will give more than 10%. Some people will not even be able to give that. But exactly how much it is, it's not the point. The point is we fulfill our responsibilities, pay our taxes to the government, look after our families, including, if necessary, our aged parents. We help the poor. We contribute to our church. And we look for ways to use whatever we've got left uh, that God has entrusted to us for his glory, for the good of others, especially in the spread of the gospel. That's the nature of Christian freedom. We are free, and we are to use our freedom to serve the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our oh, Father, we thank you so much um, for giving us for giving us that freedom that we have in Christ. Uh, thank you that you've kind of like entrusted to us that freedom, so that we can serve you with our hearts. And you've given us your Spirit to make us want to serve you and, and love you and honor you. Uh, please help us to do that, Lord. Uh, please help us to use the freedom that you've given us to. Uh, not to offend others, but to, but to serve them, to bring your gospel to them. Help us to use the freedom that you have given us, a right, uh, that we may honor you and that we may uh, show forth the fruit uh, of the decisions that we make 
uh, by, uh, and seeing your glory uh, and seeing your gospel go out. Father, thank you. And please, Father, we pray that, our, that you're by your spirit, uh, you will continually change our hearts uh, so that we make loving, uh, spiritual, uh, and godly decisions uh, with the freedom that you've given us. We thank you for the great example of our Lord Jesus. Uh, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, uh, who, who imitated him. And we pray that uh, we would follow that example as well. We pray, Lord, it's in Jesus' name.